passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This post-wrestling podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Financial literacy can be daunting, but it's one of the most valuable things you can equip yourself with. On NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast, their trusted financial journalists offer easily digestible, conversational discussions on topics like balancing your portfolio. If you think an ETF is one of Cena's five moves of doom, this show might be for you. Planning for your tax bills this April, so you don't have to worry about a visit from Erwin R. Scheister and putting away more money for retirement. Because unlike most wrestlers at the end of their careers, most of us should only plan on retiring once. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Brandon Thurston from WrestleNomics is up next, and we're going to follow Brandon with John Pollock from Post Wrestling. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. But we can't ignore the math, Okay. We can't ignore the data. Go on Google Trends, type in your name, then type in mine. You're a straight line. I'm a pyramid. I like the very direct question on that. Television ratings, downward spiral, buy rates, plummeting. The time is now to turn the math around. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a special edition of Pollock and Thurston. Don't adjust your calendar. It is not Wednesday. It's Monday morning. Hello, Brandon. Hello, John. How are you? I'm doing well. We are here uh, for a bonus edition of Pollock and Thurston, and we are going to be getting to an interview that Brandon and I recently conducted with a former WWF wrestler, Nick Kaniski, and we did chatting this on about Friday. We should we should mention. Yeah, for, for the purposes of the uh, the timeline, we spoke with him on Friday, and then we put out our story earlier today where Nick Kaniski, uh, this was the first time he has publicly spoke about this, about uh, being propositioned by a company official at the time, Terry Garvin, back in the 80s when he was with the company. And he was in the WWF from 1986 until 1987. So we thought that this would be the best way to lay this out, not just with a written story, but also so you can hear in his own words um, and adding, you know, his personal experience here, not only what he is alleging occurred, but also how he handled it, who he went to and the circumstances around the culture at the time in WWF that he observed during a, during the period that he was a regular member of the company. And I think one of the big keys here that you'll hear in the interview is uh, Nick uh, Kaniski saying he went to Vince McMahon, told him about being he was being harassed by Terry Garvin. And apparently Vince McMahon didn't do anything about it. Yes. So in this interview, we are go going to have Nick Kaniski's account of things. We also are going to hear um, an account from Vince McMahon in 1992. So this would have been several years removed from this incident in particular. Six years later. Yeah. 
in March of 1992 when the Ring Boy scandal was first making headlines and Vince McMahon was positioning himself from the get-go of learning about all this like everybody else's. Like he had no idea what was going on here. So um, with all that said, I think it's best that we just immediately get to this interview with Nick Kaniski and then Brandon and I are going to be coming back on the back end We'll react to the interview and be speaking about the many issues that are brought up uh, from Nick Kaniski here. So uh, sit back. This is uh, Nick Kaniski discussing his account of what went on during his time in the World Wrestling Federation. It's about a 27-minute uh, interview, so here we go. Get into a lot of the uh, the heavier subject matter that we will. I just wanted to do a little background for some of our, our viewers and listeners out there about sort of your transition going from a very highly accomplished amateur wrestler into professional wrestling. Was that always an avenue that you saw through, you know, re- being raised by, by your father? Was professional wrestling always something you had in mind? And tell us a little bit about your introduction into the business. Well, you know, my father being world's champion, he was also the NWA and AWA world champion. Um, I grew up it. So people go, well, what was it like to have a famous father? I go, well, I've never had any other father, so so I don't know. So that was uh, our lifestyle. I lost my mother at a very young age, and my, my father uh, raised me and my brother, and my brother Kelly wrestled too. Um, I never really thought anything else in my life. I just always wanted to be a wrestler. Now, my dad didn't really want us to be professional wrestlers, you know, because a very tough uh, lifestyle and only the, you know, when you're on the top, you, you may make a living, but it's, uh, he was not happy that I was getting into the wrestling business and didn't really support it. But that's something that I, I just wanted, wanted to do. That was going to be my lifelong dream. As soon as I got done university, I hopped in a car and drove down to Texas and I started wrestling with my brother. And then I went down to San Antonio and wrestled there, then or uh, Portland, Oregon, then over to Japan and Louisiana. And then finally AWA and finally ended up uh, with the WWF at the time. And what was the pressure like getting into the industry with a last name like Kaniski? I mean, was it, um, you know, you're you're carrying a lot of weight with that name in in the industry at at this time. Uh, you know, uh, um, because my dad didn't didn't want me in it, like uh, Fritz von Erich and, and my dad were tag team partners and they were good friends. I mean, my dad never been, uh, told Fritz that I was coming down to wrestle. Um, he wouldn't help me get booked. He really didn't train me. Eric Froelich trained me. Okay. Um, it was... Yeah, it, it it was tough. I think in a way it hindrance me, and I I think the only good thing my dad was he was pretty rough in the ring and pretty hard on guys, and, and uh, I think they'd want to kind of pay it forward to me. But you know, I was a national champion, and, and uh, I could go with the best of them, so uh, they couldn't do too much in the ring with me if I if I didn't want them to. And did your father come around to it? Did he eventually become accepting of it when he saw you, you know, going from territory to territory, or was it was it always like a, b- a bit of friction there about going this path? No, he would never come. Say if I wrestled in Vancouver, he would never come watch me wrestle. As an amateur, he'd go all everywhere to follow me wrestle. But once I started turning professional, uh, he did. I got the opportunity to wrestle with him uh, a couple times. Uh, once in Corpus Christi. And then uh, once in uh, um, San Antonio, I believe it was uh, it was uh, Dory Funk Jr. and uh, uh, I forget Mike. Uh, anyway, my dad and I got to do uh, a tag team together, so so that was fun. But he comes from a different era than uh, um, 
than wrestling is nowadays, you know, uh, and I was kind of old school, you know, uh, and, uh, I think that kind of hurt me. It's hard to transition from an amateur to a professional. Uh, I think Kurt Angle did it excellent. I think, uh, Brock Lesnar did an excellent job at, at going there, but it, it's, 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 it's hard because it kind of goes against what you were trained for. I'm always kind of curious about what training was like in a, in a prior era, because so I, I did some indie wrestling and I, I did train people too in the last you know, five, 10 years or so. And I'm just curious, like what the training, what the training environment was like for you when you were learning how to wrestle for the first time. You know, I was kind of, kind of, it, it's completely different. You know, I, I guess I, I play football too. And it's like, when you go to two a days on football, you're all black and blue. Uh, it's cold out there. You're, you're getting beat up in a wrestling room. It's always warm. You're sore, you know, you're better conditioned. And when I started, I, you know, just coming, coming off the national team, going into professional wrestling, I mean, I was in good shape. I always kept myself in good, good shape. Um, but I mean, just me hitting the ropes, I would be black and blue from here to there. You know, people would say it's fake. I mean, at, at the time, they were boxing rings. The rings were so hard. Let me slam you. You'd be uh, urinating blood the next day. I mean, it, it hurts. And I mean, the, the people don't realize, they, oh, it's fake. Maybe it's predetermined. But when you get slammed on concrete, you get slammed in, in the rings. When I went to the WWF, it was all oh, the rings were so much better than, say, different rings I wrestled in. Some of them were, were, were hard. So, um you know, I guess the old style is watching some, my dad wrestle Luthez, you know, there was a lot more wrestling. Well, it's physically impossible to be getting uh, slammed off the top rope. The turnbuckles were hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's changed a lot over the years. And and you were in some territories that, I mean, you were putting like a lot of miles in in, in between cities. And I think that part sometimes get, gets overlooked is just the, the, the amount of, of travel that it, we're talking about in that era as well by car. Excuse me. Yes, there's there, there's two things about it, right? It, it, it is the actual wrestling part was probably the easiest part of it all. The the, the traveling was hard, uh, um, and and I should say more people there, the easier it was to wrestle. You know, is you you travel 300 miles and you get in a ring and there's only 30 people watching you wrestle. Like, oh my god, you know, I don't like I don't know how I could do that stuff. But you're in you're in front of 60,000 people. You think you're a Hercules? You know, you can, you just you just do it. But yeah, when you travel a long ways and you get a fifty dollar payoff and there's only uh, 30 people there at the matches to watch you wrestle, but the show's got to go on because sometimes I wrestled when there's 30 people and next week I come back and there's 2,000 people. So you, you never know, right? So Brandon has uh, put together your career record here. So if we need any help with the timeline, we do have a pretty much like an outline here. Um, so we're going to go about a, a year and a half into your career. And this is when you go to the World Wrestling Federation. And can you tell us about the process of uh, getting get, getting into New York and how that that relationship came together and and making the move over there? Yeah, I was came back from Japan and then I was wrestling in Hawaii and then I got a call from from the office from uh, uh, I forget who from in a contract that I go to the WWF. So I go into the um, fly in and uh, start out. Um, they didn't give me a big push, but I got going uh, Madison Madison Square Gardens, and I had a match against uh, Les Thornton. Oh, no, um, 
Oh, he used to manage Kamala. Um, man, you're going Steve back Lombardi? a ways. Yeah, Steve Lombardi. And we had a great match. They put me over, and uh, uh, Dave Meltzer said that was one of the best matches of, of the night there, Nick Kaniski wrestling Lombardi, and, and they gave me a good push. The announcer said that a possible uh, future world champion, and, and they were good. Um on the on the spot shows, they usually put me over. Sometimes on TV, I'd get to do my stuff and I'd tag off to uh, another wrestler, and then they'd beat the hell out of him and pin him, and that was it. And then I got put over. And then Ray, uh, uh, a a Booker, um, came up to me and said, "Hey, they they want to give you a push, and, and uh, would like you to lose." I was probably about two seventy. You know, they would say get down to about two fifty five, two sixty. You're you're a little little too big you know you got a little baby fat on you no i guess and so i did and um yeah my career was going good i was traveling i, I was enjoying it i i that's all i ever wanted to do in life and you know you you go out there i was on on a card a lot with uh hulk hogan so there were sellouts you know and you i mean there's nothing like you know 20 30 40 50 000 people cheering your name it's a unbelievable adrenaline rush you know and what was the difference being on like a, a card headline by, by Hogan at the time versus like you're like one, one of the other like crew, like they're running like two to three shows per, per night. How big of a difference would that be for for like a big show with, with Hogan on top? Well, when he, he was hot, you know, and, and so it was always a sellout when he was there. Right. So when I was on the card, so so it was always a sellout. So it was great. And tell us. So when you are getting to shows i mean just describe for everybody sort of who are the key people in power at this point in terms of at the live events that you're maybe checking in with going over the match the finish what is asked of you like who are the the people that are the go-tos well in bw for wwe they call is uh they call them road agent so um they are retired wrestlers or some of them could still actually wrestle and fill in. So make sure you're on time. You weren't late. They would tell you, you know, the, the finish, who's going to, you know, who's going to, what are you guys going to do? And they were, they were your bosses. They kind of kept control. You know, we'd go on a road for months at a time, none of this 150 days and then time off. I mean, we'd go, you know, year around. So you'd run out of money. So you'd have to go to them and get cash, you know, from then if you wanted to advance or, or if you had any problems, you'd, you would talk to them, but they were, they were, they were our bosses. So who were some of those people at the, at that time who were working as road agents when you were there? Uh, Pat Patterson, uh, Terry Garvin, um, Jay Strongbull, uh, uh, Rene, um, Goulet. 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 Was, he, he was a great guy to me. I just want that to be noted that he treated me very well. I got to wrestle with him. Uh, he back suplex was my finish. He says it was great. And he was the one who said they were going to give me a push and lose some weight. And, and, and I, you know, a month down the line, he says, I don't know what's happening, Nick. And two months and, and he said, I, he said, I would have never told you, but that's what they told me, the office that they're going to give you a, a push and see how it goes. And then it, it never really happened. And w what were some of the uh, theories you had on what, what was uh, affecting this push for you and, and, and just running into issues. Well, well, <clears throat> there was a, he was high up in office and, and 
he was uh, one of the managers, a, a guy named Terry Garvin. And uh, he would come up to me and uh, hit on me. And uh, I mean, specifically one of the things, and I won't say what he said, but you'll, you'll understand the meaning behind it. He says, hey, Nick, um, let me perform oral sex on you. You can read a Playboy uh, and you'll have it made for life. And, uh, you know, he is my boss. He controls my boss. This is my livelihood, what I want to do. And, you know, I kind of joked with him and I said, hey, Terry, you know, I, I'm not that way. And, you know, um, but if I ever change, you'll be the you'll be the first. So I'll let you be the first to know. Just kind of laughed it off that. But he was always kind of coming up and, and joking. And one time he came in my hotel room late at night and I told him to leave, you know, knocked at the door. So it put me in a very awkward position, you know, and, uh, you know, why am I talking about this now? I've kind of talked to about before, but I I don't think it would have got any traction, you know, and I just don't want any young people who are in especially the wrestling business or any business work where, where, uh, you know, they get a pro quo or or this happens to them. I I think it shouldn't be in the workplace. And, and you definitely felt that what he, he was offering, he was trying to get a sexual favor in exchange for, you know, better treatment in oh, the pro, WWF. Pro. There's, there's no doubt about it. You know, hey, if you do, the, if you let me do this, you'll have it made for life financially. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's there's no there's no other way to take that. Was this a pretty like certainly, you know, we, we look back and this very much uh, is consistent with the reputation of Terry Garvin. Was this known at the time that. Terry Garvin would um, do this type of thing? Was this chatter amongst the locker room in terms of Terry Garvin's actions? Or was did this catch you by surprise when he made these uh, propositions? Uh, uh, I, I mean, it was, it was just the norm. You know, it was so normal that guys didn't even really think about it. That, that's how, how, how I understood it, you know. And, uh, and I can't remember when, uh, <clears throat> when dates, you know, we're going back. 39 years ago, yeah. um, you know, I've been rooming with guys and on the phone and, and, and they said, uh, Terry, uh, you, you promised me if I let you do this to me, you promised me you're going to give me more money or you're going to let me wrestle. And, and I could hear this on the phone with them arguing over the phone. Uh, did I ever see anything with any other wrestlers or anything? Uh, no, but uh, I mean, believe me, there was a lot. Uh, a lot of good looking young men in there and uh, I wasn't the only one being uh, hit on. And this was more than once that it happened to you with, at least with Terry Garvin, that it was, it sounds like yes. it, was, it was at at the venue and then also at the hotel. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to process this, like here is my career that is in this person's hands, someone that carries a lot of influence in this company what is your response? Are you, are you sharing this w- w- with anybody at the time? Yeah. I, you know, um, I talked to my, my dad about it, you know, and, and you know, probably, um, you know, you got to protect yourself, you know, and, uh, it, you know, I was young, I was impressive, impressible, impressionable, 
at that age. Um, man, I just wanted to be a professional wrestler. Leave me alone. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not that way. You know, I just do my business. If you don't, if you don't think I can make it as a wrestler, that's one thing, but don't, don't try to have a, a, a sex with me to, uh, and then give me a push, right? It's just, it's, it's not fair. And did, did you tell anybody, any, anybody, any other road agents or anybody in charge about what had happened to you with, with Terry Carter? So, so I, so, uh, I, I remember where it was. It was in Milwaukee, Oregon. We wrestled in Portland. I, uh, I called Vince and I said, Hey, Vince, you know, I don't think this is right. Terry's hitting on me. I, I don't appreciate that. And, and I would like it to stop. And Vince said, "Oh, okay. Uh, I'll deal. Uh, I'll deal with it." And and and, and that was it. And it was did, did did Vince do anything that you're aware of to to talk to Terry Carvin or do anything to respond to, to what you told him? No, it, nothing. Nothing changed. You know, he'd still say, "Hey, have you thought about my proposition?" You know, as he walks by in the dressing room. Um. So. Then, then what happened was, you know, I'm waiting to get this push, see what's happening. Uh, um, I was wrestling, I think we're doing TV and, and don't quote me on all these dates. Like I say, it's, you know, oh, I know. Years this is a long time we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, um, as we're, we're, it was great because we were staying at the Amfact Hotel in, uh, LA and we we're there for three days. And when you're wrestling, you're usually in a hotel room every night a different hotel room so if you get to stay in a hotel room for three nights in a row that's that's like a day off right and so i wrestled the friday maybe a spot show somewhere around la i don't remember and then la was saturday or, or that night and um they gave it off to me now i still have all the expenses and that would have been a good payday hogan was there it was sold out probably cow palace i believe or i don't know forget where we wrestled I think, geez, they got plans for me. They give me a night off. It's a big, uh, it's a big, big payday. I don't get paid, and I'm still paying for my hotel and food and everything. I go, well, that's that's great. They don't have plans, and uh, then they came in and uh, um, I wrestled Randy Savage and 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 I put him over, uh, um, and uh, so. Uh, Still no push, and I see they want me to do a, a put someone else over, and and I said I, I thought uh, Vince, I said this, this isn't right, Vince. You know I, I complain, and now you guys are punishing me. And I go, I'll finish my bookings, but um, I'm not putting any any guys over. Put me in a ring, we'll see what happens. And Vince knows I can take care of myself, so he said no, no. He says then I said I'm done. I said I'll, I'll finish my. Uh, my, uh, you know, my matches. Nope, you're you're done now. I said, "Well, thank you very much." And I walked back, and I believe Brett was there. And I said, "Hey, Brett, I just quit." He goes, "Wow, well, can't I can't believe you quit." I said, I, "I can't. You know, they can beat you, but they're not they're not gonna take my dignity from me." And and I remember personally walking out with my Halberton bag on. This was my lifelong dream. I know I was done because Vince at the time had the only promotion. There was no other place for me to wrestle to make a living. You know, there's my, what I always wanted to do. My dreams are, are gone. But when I was walking out and I looked at all the wrestlers and, and, and you know, it, it gave me some self pride. You know, it just, it, it made me feel good that you can't take my dignity. I can hold my head up. You guys can't. 
you know, to live that kind of lifestyle and put up with that and be treated that way. You know, I'm just so happy now that the guys are making money and they got some protection. They got some time off. I mean, it's changed, but it was a doggy dog world when, when, when I was wrestling back in the days. I forget who said it. It says it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, inmates taking care of the asylum. You know, we didn't have any control like all other promotions. It was the wrestlers, you know? So, um, yeah, it was a crazy business. I don't think people realized how crazy a business it was. And, and you feel you were treated differently in the booking after rejecting oh, T- yeah. Terry Garvin. For sure. And then that's what For led sure. to you to, to talk to yeah. Vincent about leaving. Yeah. Well, I talked to Vince. I didn't want it to stop. But after it didn't stop, and then, 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 then they're, you know, trying to make an example on, out of me, you know, like, nah, I ain't going to do that. You know, so, uh. Yeah, so I uh, walked out, went back to the AMFAC, called my dad, hopped on a plane, and he picked me up and then uh, didn't know what to do and got in a restaurant bar business and had some of the two of the biggest bars in Washington at one time. They were rocking and, and it's down to one. And uh, anyone's ever in Point Roberts, Washington, stop by Kaniski's Reef. It's on the water, a, a beautiful place to see. And uh, if you guys come out, I'd even buy you a beer. Okay, we'll, we'll hold you to that. Yeah. A few beers. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> a few years after you leave the WWF, um, that is when uh, the, the Ring Boy scandal occurs and there are the resignations of Terry Garvin and Pat Patterson. They also stop working with a, a ring announcer by the name of Mel Phillips. Were you detached from the industry at, at this point? Were you aware when that news happened in 1992? And was it at all shocking to you that finally there was a, a spotlight on what had been just the, this open secret that had been going on for years. You know, after, uh, after I got out of wrestling, I didn't even follow it. Right. You know, um, just in the last few years, uh, James Sabelski is a good friend of mine. He's an announcer. He follows wrestling. He probably knows more about wrestling than I do. And so, um, um, that's how I know you guys. It was out in the scuttlebutt that what happened to me and people would call and want to interview me and stuff. But, you know, I, I didn't want to be like, hey, I had sour grapes and I'm just mad, you, you know, so I didn't really want to be interviewed. Vince was very strong, individual, uh, very well spoken, you know, and, uh, and a lot of money to back him. So I just, you know, I just moved on with my life. I was super busy in the restaurant business and, and uh you know, just moved on with my life, didn't really follow it, didn't watch it, didn't, you know, can you imagine a lot of people want to come in and talk about it in the restaurant? Well, the less I knew, the less I could talk about it because I got tired of talking about it all the time. You know, there's other things to talk about. But uh, but lately, uh, you know, I started watching again different videos and, you know, watching watching podcasts and stuff. And no, I wasn't really aware of that. You know, I heard little rumblings about that, but uh, it, it doesn't surprise me one bit. My understanding that they changed positions with them, but Terry Garvin came back eventually. Terry Garvin never came back. Pat Patterson mm-hmm. did. Um, yeah. but Terry Garvin, they never worked with again. And he was pretty much just out of the industry completely until he died a few years after that. Yeah. Um, of course, this had a lot of uh, media attention at the time, and we just wanted to play a short clip for you. This is about 30 seconds or so. This is when Vince McMahon uh, was on Larry King Live. This was March 13th of 1992, and I just want to let you hear this 
and get your reaction. So here's Vince McMahon from 1992. One has gone to a police agency and said I was forced to have sex. No one has filed one single charge, not one single charge with the police, uh, with anyone. Concerning sexual harassment. Concerning sexual harassment. Have you ever heard rumors of it? No. I mean, these are things that uh, you don't hear rumors of sexual harassment. Uh, you wouldn't hear that? Oh, wait, if in fact you have someone who may be uh, gay, then sure, you're going to hear a locker room horseplay. That's going to happen. But just that. Anyone can always come to me. They've always been able to come to me and tell me if anything is out of line. So if any, any, of, any of your wrestlers could have come to you and said, there's a guy in the office coming on with me. Absolutely. Notwithstanding the fact that I would not have wanted to have been that guy because any of my wrestlers would have broken his neck. I mean, you just don't do things like that. So again, that was Vince McMahon in 1992 yeah. stating that anyone could come with come to me. And Vince is, you know, pleading ignorance here. And the way that you know, just reporting that has come out over the time. There's certainly belief now that he was aware of the issues with Mel Phillips when he fired him in 1988 and then shortly after rehired him. And I mean, uh, you have, you know, in, in your case, Nick, you went right to Vince McMahon. And I mean, he at this time in 1992 is stating like he's hearing about this stuff for the first time. Yeah, I can only tell my story. You know, and I, I from <clears throat> excuse me, from Milwaukee, Oregon. I remember at the hotel there, I called Vince and put a complaint in about Terry Garvin. Well, we we, we wanted just to um, play play that clip for you as well. It seems that, you know, after, do you look back at your time in professional wrestling and is this something that, that clouds it for you? Or do you still have some, you know, fond memories of your, your time in the industry? You know, I, I try to stay positive. You, you know, I, I really, it, it was uh, I was probably lucky to get out of the industry. You know, it's a hard lifestyle. You know, I, I'm very successful. You know, I got to be a fire fire chief. I, I've got to be, uh, you know, owner of the bars. Life's been very good to me. I got to play some Palm Springs, Arizona. I get to travel. So, so I, so I was probably lucky I got out of the out of the business because I would probably be, you know, beat up in a wheelchair. Um, it's just not a good lifestyle. I just well, want to mention, I, th- I think it's important that there are, there are more people, like we saw Paul Roma on News Nation uh, several days ago come out with a story about you know things that he was aware of. But I think it, it just, it gives people reassurance that, you know, that people are going to kind of back them up to say that I, I had a similar experience. You know, and, and I saw that interview, right? And I think that's what really made me, you know, if Paul would come out and, 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 and talk, I'm sure he was hassled. Uh, um and I think, you know, I should get out and, and say something. So hopefully this never happens again. It's um, I think it's really important, Nick, that, you know, people it, it's very tough to come out and, and talk about these things publicly. But this is an industry that has gotten away with a lot is just kept quiet. You don't talk about stuff that goes on behind closed doors. And here we are all these years later and these these scandals keep popping up. I think it's very important that people uh, come out and and share these stories. So I want to thank you very much, not just for being open, but also, you know, having the trust to come on and and speak with us about what I'm sure is not the most uh, easy topic to discuss. Yeah, it's, it's, it's life. And it was, it was part of my life and I walked away with a, a, in a, in a very awkward situation. You know, they didn't, they didn't take my, 
my pride from me. You know, I, I felt I never did anything wrong and uh, it worked out very well for me. I just uh, feel very sorry for the people it didn't didn't work out for. And hopefully it never happens again. Well, we want to thank you very much, Nick, uh, for joining Brandon and myself. And uh, we will definitely take you up on that offer for uh, several beers when we, uh, hey, hey, when we connect. John and Brandon, thank you very much for having me on your great podcast. May the best things that happen to me be the worst things that happen to you. And you guys have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Speaking with Brandon Thurston and I from this past Friday. So, again, we want to thank uh, Nick very much for uh, joining us. A lot of takeaways uh, from that, Brandon, uh, re-listening to it just now on top of it. it I mean, your, your key points that are brought up is that uh, during his time there, he was informed by Rene Goulet, listen, uh, cut some pounds, the office has plans for you. And he outlined, you know, comments that were made by Terry Garvin, who we should put into context here. He was an official with the company. He was uh, at a point, a, a booking assistant to uh, Pat Patterson would have, um, you know, had an, an, an office role in the company. And allegedly, according to Nick, that he was flat out proposition by Terry Garvin stating that, listen, you will, if, if you go ahead with this, you'll be made in this company in essence. And Nick Kaniski refuted or not refuted, but turned down this advance and went to Vince McMahon, issued a complaint and the comments did not stop. Terry Garvin was not in any way admonished for this, continued working with the company. And, and then, you know, Nick started to see like a change in how the company was booking him and ultimately left the company. And Terry Garvin continued to work with the WWF until the resignations in early 1992. And Garvin never came back to the company. He was, he died of stomach cancer in 1998, but that was pretty much the end of him in the industry. And I think that it just, it does outline, you know, other reports that we have seen in terms of the key individuals involved in this, like we go back to 1988 and what David Bixenspan uncovered when he wrote that Business Insider article that Mel Phillips was fired once in 1998 due to, you know, his un unnatural uh, relationships with with young boys and then hired rehired by the company with the provision that he steer clear of the ring boys and continued with the company up until 1992 when they uh, stopped working with him in the midst of the ring boy scandal. Like it does, this, this is not just something where it is um, solely on the person that was propositioning talent, but the fact that this went to the very top and were examples of complaints and that went unheard. And, and just to catch people up. So Terry Garvin is not the first allegation of sexual harassment against Terry Garvin. I know we, there's an allegation from Barry Orton. Is that correct? And and, yes. and there's allegations that Terry Garvin was involved with the ring boy scandal in terms of would it be harassing or also assaulting the ring boys? Well, in, in the Barry Orton case was when uh, Terry Garvin was a booker in the Amarillo territory and Barry Orton has stated in uh, both uh, it was on John Arezzi's show later with Slam Wrestling that he was in the car and that Terry Garvin was repeatedly propositioning him to perform oral sex on Barry Orton, who turned him down repeatedly. But it was a very uncomfortable six hour car ride that the two were having. And it seemed like Garvin was just relentless here. And 
Barry Orton felt that, you know, when he got to the WWF, that the fact that he turned that, down those advances all the way back in 1978, that there was, you know, here here is somebody that is in a, a power position in WWF. You also had Tom Cole, who stated that in his uh, in his issue that he had instances with Terry Garvin, including one where he was brought to Garvin's home and ended up sleeping out in the out in a vehicle outside of Garvin's home, not wanting to be in there with him. And the following day, Tom Cole finding out he's been fired by the company in February of 1990. And it relayed to Tom Cole that it was Garvin's call to fire him. Right. And and I I think one of the biggest takeaways we have here is we know that Vince goes on Larry King in 1992 and says that he's never even heard rumors of any kind of sexual harassment or sexual misconduct within the company. And we have, uh, Nick Kaniski telling us that yeah, in, in 1986 or 87, he, he talked to Vince and Vince did nothing. And a failure on Larry King in the sense of an easy like follow-up that was extremely glaring in listening to those clips is that when Vince McMahon uh, pauses and states no, also adding the caveat, well, if someone is gay and you hear about horseplay in the locker room, sure. Please define horseplay. Like what what was horseplay that was going on that made its way to your um it, onto your desk? H- how did you hear about this and what exactly are you uh alluding to when it comes to horseplay and who did that involve as well? And and to put this timeline in context, I know you have done some research to to try to to try to place where where these these incidents happened. Um if we put this in context to think about, you know, Rita Chatterton's allegation of being sexually assaulted by Vince McMahon in the limousine, that's July 1986. So that is actually before this. You've got allegedly Vince McMahon being involved in a rape already at this point when when Nick Kaniski tells him that he's being sexually harassed. It gives you some idea of whether or not Vince really did take this seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah. That Like this is in, you know, fairly close proximity to that as well. And yeah, we, we've tried to pieces together and obviously like we are talking 37 years ago um that that this occurred and i mean we we cannot like lock down the dates of where this happened and when you heard from nick there like he believed that he had wrestled somewhere in i think it was los angeles in and around that area but he outlines a a friday night show that he works and then the saturday he is he is set for a show he threw out the idea it could have been the Cow Palace as a possibility and is taken off of a show and therefore you know, doesn't, doesn't get a payoff for a Saturday night show. And while we couldn't link up those cities, what I was able to find on, on the history of WWE site is that right at the end of his run, he does work a Friday night show in Landover, Maryland. And then the next night, he is advertised to take on Mike Sharp at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, which would be a... a you know, an A-list city for them. And it's it's removed, does not take place. And then he ends up wrestling one more match with the company just days later on May the 20th against Ron Bass. And then his next advertised date is May 23rd in Hartford. That match does not take place as advertised and he never wrestles for the company again. So, I mean, I, I look at that again, we can't, lock that down as this is the timeline of when all of this occurred. Um, but, it, but it does link up with his description of a Friday, Saturday um, set of dates. And then if you are to look at it of him eventually, you know, giving his notice and 
Vince McMahon telling him, uh, you, you can be done now, um, that, that would link up with, with the ending there. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's encouraging to hear him say at the end that, you know, he feels like he preserved his integrity. He didn't, he didn't do anything that he was coerced into and he, he chose to just leave the company rather than deal with that. Um, for anybody that might be wondering is why we're doing this now and how it connects to today. What would you say, John, to somebody who's, who's sort of questioning you? Why are you digging this up from this is from 37 years ago today in light of the news that's that's coming out of late, in, including the Janelle Grant lawsuit against uh, WWE, Vince McMahon and John Laurinaitis? As we've dedicated so much time and effort to this story, yes, the Janelle Grant lawsuit is what has spurred on so much of this. But to me, this is a much larger picture we are trying to paint that this is something that we can look at instead of these random isolated incidents, whether it is Nick Kaniski or Rita Chatterton or the Ring Boy scandal or Ashley Massaro or Janelle Grant. All of this is under a system. And to me, it starts at the top with Vince McMahon, that there is a culture that is prevalent throughout decades of this company, that there are stories of knowledge right at the very top where action was not taking place. And I think that you have to only apply this culture to what you read in this Janelle Grant lawsuit. All of this was shrouded in secrecy and silence and NDAs that I think we are, we are painting a much broader picture of a company that there was knowledge of this that went unchecked for decades. And this is just another example of it. And, and I would add that there are parallels in in the sense that Janelle Grant's complaint alleges that multiple WWE executives who are not Vince had knowledge of the abuse that she alleges was was occurring uh, by Vince McMahon and John Laurinaitis, that they had knowledge and nothing was done to intervene. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. But it's it's similar to Vince allegedly having knowledge of sexual misconduct that was happening back in the 80s, as, as early as then. And... I don't know if this is going to be some, you know, large outpouring of different stories coming forward or not, but it was really telling in the interview, Brandon, that the thing that gave Nick the push to talk about this was just hearing the Paul Roma clip from last week, which was a story that had been out there, but revisited by Ashley Banfield and just seeing that and there is a power in numbers when people are, are coming out and talking about these stories for the first time in an industry that is, you are so pushed towards, you don't, you don't snitch. You don't talk about the inner workings of the industry. What goes on behind closed doors stays behind there. And having that ability to go forward, um, this was a case of someone that was incentivized in the, in the sense that hearing another story, they wanted to get their story out with the hope that, you know, maybe it spurs on others that this does not happen again to anybody else. And I think that there is a, a real powerful message there in terms of, you know, one person comes forward and does that encourage others to share their own experiences that are out there. We have an example here in Nick Kaniski deciding to speak publicly about this for the first time. Yeah. And I think that that sense of not wanting to say anything or do anything that's going to hurt the business or hurt WWE was well articulated in a, I, I think this is a recent interview that, that Dawn Marie did. I don't know if you saw these comments where she talks about why, why she didn't, you know, c come out with this, some of her complaints, including, you know, W releasing her in, in 2005 when she was pregnant. And she explains it in, in the sense that she didn't want to come out and, you know, 
say bad things about the business and hurt the business because the, I guess, you know, in the sense that the business has done so much for me, how dare I go out and do something that, that hurts uh, the business, which I think is just, you know, a totally wrongheaded mentality to have. And I don't know that she has that mentality now, but that it, the, it underscores the, the institution that has been built in terms of how this is viewed by those that are occupying this industry that work in it. Like this is something that is bred into people of you do not attack the business. You do not break down the business. And I mean, I, I'm not making comparisons of like other stories, but I mean, you can look at, you know, the church being an institution that it was that same kind of thinking in that you don't speak out against the church and look at the reporting that went into that uh, for, from the Boston Globe over two decades ago. Yeah, I was. I would say nobody's under an obligation to come forward with their story about you know abuse and trauma, and I think that yet, yet on the other hand, you're not doing something to hurt this institution or this organization. You're doing something that should improve it, improve the the, the treatment of people, and prevent people from being harmed in the future. I, I that's exactly it. It's like no one is no one is pushing anyone to you know have to relive what could be the most traumatic events of their of their entire lives. Um, but if the reason is just preservation of this industry as though you are owing to it, it is, I think, the the health of the industry that this is uncovered and significant changes are made so that this is never something that is happening uh, again, even if we are talking about instances from three decades ago. But you can look in the case of Janelle Grant that none of those situations should ever be occurring either. And those are much more recent and and happening within this modern age as much as you would look at well, the industry is not the same as it was in the 80s. That stuff isn't going on now. Yeah, but there are plenty of other uh, issues that you can read in that 67-page lawsuit by Janelle Grant that is modern. Absolutely. So anyway, that was um, that was our full interview with uh, Nick Kaniski. Again, we want to thank him very much uh, for joining us. We're going to be uh, back on Wednesday speaking uh, about a pair of subjects because TKO is going to be having their earnings call on Tuesday evening. Nothing like an evening earnings uh, call to hear. Are you expecting the same format of Ari Emanuel, Mark Shapiro as the representatives on this call? I am. I think it's going to be maybe a little bit more insight on, on, on W Business, but not a lot than we got last time. I think uh, last time it was the case that the merged company had only really existed with both entities inside of the holding company for about two weeks. This will be an entire quarter. Uh, but I think we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get uh, four segments for UFC, four segments for WWE. Um, I think there's some interesting questions to be asked. Be very curious around this subject whether any of the analysts on the Q and A do ask Ari Emanuel or Mark Shapiro anything about why Vince was brought back to the company. You know, how, how, did they do due diligence? How much did they really do to to look into what the allegations were around Vince, etc.? Um, and there's what's a question: the, What's the state of his stock? Is he Right. Does, is there is there any um, is there any ability for TKO to request him to divest of stock? It, will he remain still the largest uh, single lo- the single largest shareholder? And and I've brought this point up a lot of times. Stock analysts are interested in in estimating the value of this company. What should the stock price? What is the appropriate stock price for this company? That is their ultimate objective, mm-hmm. and it's not always to to be a journalist and ask questions that we think should be asked. So. I, I will not be surprised if there's minimal conversation around this, given that uh, some of the, the equity analyst reports that we've seen so far uh, don't mention this, this scandal around Vince uh, really at all. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. I, 
another thing I'm interested to see if they give us any news about is what's going to happen in Q4 of this year when Raw's deal with USA Network has expired. That's right. And there's going to be a October, November, December where where's, where's Raw going to air and uh, before it goes to Netflix in January. So that will be coming up um, this Wednesday. We'll we'll spend the first half of the show talking about the, uh, the the earnings call, what is said, what is not said. And then on the back half of the show, I'm looking forward to this conversation. We're going to be welcoming in John Arezzi, who was the host of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight show that was uh, doing all of this coverage over three decades ago when the Ring Boy scandal was breaking. And I mean, his show was a very influential one when it came to the amount of names that he was having on. A lot of these stories were um, beginning on his show of people coming forward, speaking on the record. And, you know, he has written about it in his, in his book. And he has a very unique experience in that he first met Mel Phillips in the early seventies at a fan convention. And they were, you know, he was one, they were two of the regulars at a lot of the garden shows. So he was friendly with, with Mel Phillips before the knowledge of all of the, um, the allegations against Mel Phillips would come to light. So, I mean, he has it from that perspective of covering the story with probably a, deeper knowledge or at least a relationship with Mel Phillips than most had in that early nineties period. So I think that this is going to be a really enlightening conversation uh, with John and how it contrasts to today that here we are all these years later and looking at a fresh set of scandals on top of it. And and that as always is at on Wednesday at three. Uh, And and it's the ironic point. I I pointed out to you last night, I was going through some of the Kaniski's matches, including the two, you know, well, better known matches uh, he had with Randy Savage and Mel Phillips is actually the ring announcer for one of those matches. So what do you know? Um, Before we end off, uh, is there anything you wanted to share about uh, Anthony Gaines? He was a um, Buffalo area independent wrestler who uh, died uh, very tragically over the weekend at the age of 30. I know that, you know, obviously um, very heavily part of of the same scene as you. Uh, It was just a very unfortunate story, not someone I was too familiar with, but I would imagine most would have seen the, uh, very viral clip that he was involved yeah, in the uh, Ace Romero back in 2018, which just got circulated everywhere of him taking this incredible pounce uh, out of the ring. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's really shocking and sad. Um, I mean, there were a lot of people in, in our independent wrestling scene who were close with him and it's just, uh, you know, we don't, we don't know what would happen, but you know, it's, it's really sad. Um, I would say he's, he's one of the, the generation of guys that I think came through sort of helping out at ESW and helping with ring crew when I was, I don't know, maybe in my earlier thirties or late twenties or so when it did feel like there was like another generation of local independent wrestling talent coming up. And, you know, he was always a very uh, outspoken person and uh, you know, like we would go, everybody would get together and like go out to eat afterwards. And he would always be, you know, yelling up a storm or something like that. And I, I remember making a comment to him once, like you'd make a great manager. And he was pissed to hear me say that because <laughs> like he wanted to be a wrestler. And like, I, I totally underestimated him and he very much uh, became a wrestler, you know, far beyond what I could, uh, far beyond what I imagined uh, he was capable of. And um, he did, did very well for himself uh, as a wrestler for sure. So just want to send our, our condolences to friends, uh, family as well of uh, Anthony Gaines, who passed away at the age of 30. So that's going to do it for today's special edition of the show. Thank you to everybody uh, for tuning in on this Monday show. Again, we're back on Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. You can also catch up on your WrestleNomics listening from Sunday with a, a rundown of all things going on 
in the world of professional wrestling with one Brandon Thurston at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. I'm back tonight with Wei Ting on the Post Wrestling YouTube channel with Rewind to Raw. So we will speak with you then. And coming up Wednesday, John Arezzi joins Pollock and Thurston.